Welcome into another edition of the Hops and Spirits podcast. We just finished up summer school 2021 and we're still going to be learning. So I guess I might just call this uh, summer school extra credit because uh, we're going to learn about some alcohol policy laws and ha- how things are changing and, and uh, what, what some obstacles are for uh, folks getting into the beverage world here shortly. Uh, remember to follow us on all of our social media at Hop Spirits, all one word on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. There you can find all sorts of cool things like our Give It A Try highlights every Monday night and our cocktail quickies shaking things up on Fridays. And you can also uh, find out a lot of cool other things that we got going on. Remember, at Hop Spirits, all one word on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And you can find us on our brand new website, hopspirits.com. Uh, we're going to see all of our past episodes and so much more. But we're here talking alcohol laws and policy with Jared Dieterle. Did I say that right? Yeah, you got it. <laughs> and you know, fifth time was a charm. You know, practiced a few times before we hit the record button. But Jared researches and writes on regulatory affairs, alcohol policy, occupational licensing, and other commercial freedom issues for our street. And he also wrote a really cool book called Give Me Liberty and Give Me a Drink, which I have enjoyed thoroughly. Jared, and uh, he was on this podcast before to talk about that book. So, uh, Jared, welcome back. Yeah, thank you much for having me. I, I appreciate it. It's always fun to talk about this stuff. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I feel like you have a, a fun job, uh, at, at least in, in my head you do. Yeah, I mean, no, I, I think so too. I mean, especially if you come uh, into it from kind of the policy side, which is where I, I came in from it uh, from and, um, you know, kind of later in life, obviously, once I, I was kind of out of college and, in, and even out of law school, I kind of more got into, um, you know, cocktails and, and um, and, and beer, you know, craft beer and stuff like that and kind of develop that, that whole side later. But, uh, for, yeah, for someone coming from policy world, um, there's a lot of dry topics that you can study, uh, and no pun intended, um, but, you know, really, uh, really boring dull ones. And, uh, and, and this isn't one. So I feel really, really lucky. Well, and we're, we're lucky to have you and let's, let's start this off with what I like to call our one tough question. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, uh, you know, since we're in July now, when we're, we're, when this episode's dropping, are you a guy that's uh, going on a vacation or a staycation? What, what's your preferred, uh, uh, you know, vacation, so to speak? No, I'd, I love, uh, I love traveling. So yeah, I would, um, I, I would pick that uh, uh, vacation for sure. Um, I guess, you know, doubly so after we've all been stuck inside for, I guess, mo- most of the better part of a year and a half now. So, <laughs> but yeah, no, that's uh, pretty straightforward for me. I, I always like exploring new places and, you know, one of the great things about, uh, the U.S. right now is you can go and, and do kind of um, agritourism or, or booze tourism, you know, and go to a brewery from a, a, a different state that you're in or a distillery or winery. So I find that a lot of fun too. Uh, I, I totally get that. I'm, I'm a vacation type of person. Uh, you know, I don't mind maybe taking a weekend off and, and staying home uh, from time to time, but definitely a vacation. I love, you know, going to new places, love the beach. Uh, if I had, had a spot to go to, it'd always be the beach, but I also love just like you said, getting to travel, try some new things, whether it's a distillery, winery, meadery, uh, you know, a craft brewery or something. I swear almost every place you go now at least has one of those, uh, which makes things a lot more fun uh, if you're into that kind of stuff, which I think we both are. Uh, so, so no, I, I, I totally get that. And, and you kind of touched on this, you know, right before I asked that question, you do policy work, but it's for the beverage world. So what, what exactly do you do? Yeah, well, I, I do. It isn't the only thing that I focus on, but I, I generally um, focus on uh, uh, regulatory issues um, or things that constrain um, people uh, or businesses from uh, doing whatever their livelihood might be. Uh, you know, kind of um, 
arbitrary restrictions or things that, that might not make sense um, or, or uh, kind of outdated rules uh, and, and regulations that uh, somehow handicapped what they're trying to do in a way that doesn't really make sense. Obviously, some laws can prevent you from doing things, you know, and that could be a good thing, right? Uh, like uh, drunk driving laws. So we want to, you know, make sure that people aren't uh, out there hurting themselves or others. Uh, but there's a whole host of, of other uh, laws and regulations and, and really all industries that have been put on the books over the years that uh, are, are either kind of nonsensical or could be made a little more streamlined and better. And so I, I generally look at that, but alcohol is uh, such a prime example of uh, outdated nonsensical rules uh, that, that it's uh, an area that's kind of grown and grown in my like uh, my portfolio, I guess, of, of research and, and study. So, uh, and then, and then COVID only accelerated that since a lot of uh, these rules have changed, uh, uh, at least, at least uh, starting to change. So. Well, and, and one of those that, that I really wanted to, to talk to you about is one that people don't always think about uh, is when, you know, countries can get into trade disputes and how big of an impact that can have with uh, tariffs on imports and exports and, and, and things like that. One of the biggest was we had it with Europe or the European Union. And it seems to be that, and the worst part was the alcohol wasn't even part of the main issue. It was something totally different with, you know, Boeing and, and Airbus and so forth. Uh, but with that kind of now being settled, are you expecting for folks to see some relief again? And, and can you talk a little bit about how that dispute may have played a role in higher prices as well? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Boeing and Airbus, um, the uh, uh, American and European, you know, airline um, uh, companies that I'm sure everyone's heard of, uh, they were in a, a dispute um, uh, over uh, kind of how much their governments uh, support them, um, and, and kind of a subsidy dispute, and it, it spilled over into other things. So uh, the um, uh, you know different sides of the Atlantic, the U.S. and, and Europe were kind of kept escalating uh, weapons to strike back at the other one uh, over this dispute. And it started encompassing more and more, you know, products. So distilled spirits uh, got uh, sucked into that. Uh, unfortunately, even those you said didn't really have anything to do with, uh, with the dispute at hand. Um, and and it, uh, it led to, uh, you know, it was 25% tariff um, uh, being slapped on uh, distilled spirits uh, from uh, the U.S. Um, and so that was uh, something that was, uh, uh, you know, very, um, and then, you know, there was, there was retaliatory tariffs both ways. So it was, it was essentially making it so the export markets for our uh, producers of alcohol were being hurt uh, in Europe and then uh, vice versa if stuff was being sent uh, here. I mean, to kind of understand how these tariff disputes can work, I mean, one of the things that we had done is kind of slap a tariff on uh, uh, European liqueurs. So I always like to use the example of like a Negroni, right? It's got uh, gin, um, sweet vermouth and, and Campari. And so two out of those three things, Campari and sweet vermouth uh, were subject to these tariffs. And so uh, that raises the price of them. So the bar has to pay more to get them. Uh, and then uh, therefore your drink uh, costs uh, more. Um, and I, you know, your gin too could be from, from Europe, right? So it could be all, all three ingredients in it. And so that, that's what it can do to the cost of your cocktail. Um, you know, craft, craft cocktails are costing a lot nowadays. You're not uncommon to see $20 ones out there. Um, usually because that's they're, they're of a higher quality, but, but it also can be policy reasons that, that are making it more. Um, it, it, it's, it, so this, this finally, this, this whole dispute got, um, uh, uh, settled at least the main dispute isn't settled, but they've decided to put a pause on, on these tariffs. Uh, I think it was like a five-year 
kind of uh, armistice that they <laughs> they signed on it. But uh, there there still is uh, uh, tariffs that um, affect uh, U.S. products. Uh, whiskeys from America right now um, are, are uh, still have a twenty five percent tariff. Uh, that's in connection with the uh, steel and aluminum dispute. Uh, so uh, again, uh, another example of alcohol getting uh, kind of uh, brought into the fray, uh, even even when it doesn't necessarily involve it. Um, and and so, yeah, it's, it's not settled. It's better than it was. It's something that's very much uh, roiled the alcohol markets um, with uncertainty and, uh, and, and I think uh, made uh, an economic impact that uh, particularly during COVID uh, was, uh, was really uh, difficult for a lot of producers to weather. Yeah, because I mean, it's not like some of these industries, you, you know exactly how much material you need to make down down the road, so to speak, and, and put out. And, you know, European market was growing very, very rapidly and very well for a lot of them. And, you know, that impacts a lot of jobs here. And, and like I said, I don't think everyone always understands how sometimes you, unfortunately, the alcohol world gets thrown into these other issues. Now, one where it wasn't thrown into, but maybe the pandemic changed a lot of things, changed people's perspectives was the to-go cocktails. I know here in Kentucky, we we were like a lot of states where we let that happen so bars could get rid of you know product and also bring in some money. And then we made it permanent as well. Um, wh- what did you see with that? And then obviously it seems like there's a big push for, for that to continue uh, and to allow folks to do that. Yeah, it, it, uh, it's funny because we've, you know, forever had takeout pizza, right? I mean, that's just like a, a, a ubiquitous part of, of every American town. Uh, and, you know, we've gotten takeout from, you know, most every restaurant does some version or can do a version of takeout for food uh, and they can give you a soda uh, to go, but alcohol uh, being a great exception with it. There's certain places and locales. Um, New Orleans is the one that, that people often point to where you can kind of get go cups um, and walk around. There's some other cities that have, more limited modified versions of that in certain areas. Uh, but, but yeah, it was something that was not widespread. Uh, and then all of a sudden when these, these restaurants and bars uh, were forced to uh, either close temporarily or, or uh, vastly reduce their, their dining capacity, uh, they of course pivoted to, to doing more delivery and, and more takeout. And uh, I think that uh, People, I don't know if people outside the industry always realize that, that alcohol makes up a, a huge portion of revenue for a lot of restaurants. Uh, it tends to have higher markups. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it tends to uh, be a, a, a big portion of kind of the revenue and profit that, that a ref- restaurant brings in. And so not having that on the table uh, made the pandemic even more difficult. Uh, and so a lot of these governors started uh, doing emergency orders and, and allowing that. And then once it happens, kind of all the parade of horribles that a lot of people trotted out worrying about why, why it was a, a really bad idea. People were you know, worried that people would drink them in their car. Um, even though we've, you know, had, you can recork wine bottles from restaurants for years in most States. Um, and you, know, you can get a six pack from the grocery store, which is just as easy to open up as a, mm-hmm. a to go cocktail. But uh, all, all those fears kind of didn't come to fruition. And so uh, I think policymakers uh, said, well, you know, let's make this permanent. Once the toothpaste is, is out of the tube, it's hard to, <laughs> to put it back. And, and, and so we're starting to see that um, uh, several uh, dozen states, I think at this point, have at least considered legislation for it. Many have, have passed it. Um, the thing that um, is going to be really interesting to watch is how many of them um, kind of take that second step of, of uh, permanentizing it. Um, we've already seen the first two states now that uh, have actually withdrawn it. 
um, uh, Pennsylvania and uh, a bill failed there to uh, make it permanent. Um, and then New York, actually, uh, they there was a bill that was going to at least extend it, I think, by a couple of years, uh, at least in the state legislature that never went anywhere. And uh, 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 Governor Cuomo in New York ended the state of emergency. And so that was uh, one of the things that was, that was the thing that was sustaining to go cocktails. And so I actually just wrote an article about it interviewing some, some uh, bartenders up there. They, they had a one day warning that uh, to go cocktails Ooh. were gone. Um, and many of them had, uh, uh, you know, hundreds, if, if not thousands of, of bottles uh, that they were bottling them in and labels that are all going to waste. So it's going to be interesting to see how many states actually uh, make it permanent. I, I do think that's most of them are, are considering it or, or or at least leaning that way. But uh, I think that it's going to be very um, hard for the the states that try to uh, kind of go back on that because people become used to it and and like it and are asking the question of why not? Uh, you know, if there's if there's mm-hmm. no real harm, why why not allow this? Well, it, it feels like it goes back to a lot of things with not just alcohol laws, any laws. It, it makes it, it's almost like you, you you cherry pick who gets to do what. And, you know, like you said, you can go get beer to go from a store. You can, uh, you know, you can get a bottle of bourbon to go from a store. You can get wine. Most places, wine has been around for so long that they have what feels like very lax laws compared to, to other things. Uh, so it's always interesting to see how that plays. And I guess this is some of it just the mindset of folks like just being so nervous that bad things are going to happen. And that's why they kind of almost want to put that toothpaste back in the tube, so to speak. Yeah, I think that there's there's a lot of concern that uh, alcohol will generate what uh, policy nerds uh, like myself will call it, well, negative externalities. Um, you know, just a fancy way of saying uh, some kind of cost or danger to, to other people. Right. Um and, and certainly, you know, alcohol is, is uh, can be an intoxicating product and, and it can cause um, issues if uh, people, the, the best example, uh, again, uh, is if people operate a, a motor vehicle after, after they become intoxicated, uh, right? I mean, it's an extreme negative externality if you, if you drive drunk and, and hurt someone or yourself. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's other, um, uh, you know, being drunk and disorderly or, or, or you know, um, getting drunk and breaking into someplace, right? I mean, alcohol can contribute to, to that stuff, sure. But uh, we already have laws uh, on the books that address a lot of that stuff. And unless there can be shown a real link between um, whatever, you know, something like to-go cocktails, for example, and um, uh, you know, the, the, the particular harm that, you, that you're worried about, um, it doesn't make a lot of sense to uh, arbitrarily uh, uh, have these rules in place if they're not related to that. And so I think that that's just like what it kind of just, the idea is take a step back, kind of pause and be like, is this really uh, maybe contributing to some of the things that we are worried about? Or have we already addressed that uh, through laws and this probably won't really contribute to it? Um, and I think that's the, the case with uh, to-go cocktails. I mean, in some ways too, just from an intuitive, logical sense, right? I mean, the, the, if you had to go cocktails, a lot of people to take something home and drink it, the, the pressure um, in, in, in some cases could be much less to consume mm-hmm. on-premise, right? Uh, you know, last call type thing, you know, chug two beers and then go home. Well, if you could, <laughs> if you can bring, you know, that, that beer home or, or that uh, mojito home and then maybe finish there, then, then it actually could reduce uh, some of those costs and harms. So uh, that's what happens often in, in, uh, Alcohol, I, people make those those safety and harm arguments. I think that 
because so often they're not plausible, more what really is going on is that uh, uh, different licensees, as you kind of hit upon, are trying to prevent others from doing what they feel like is their territory or their turf. So the grocery store, the um, place that's selling, the, the corner store that's selling the to-go, or not the to-go, but the you know six-pack of mm -hmm. beer um, or, or the bottle of bourbon, uh, they don't like the idea all the time, uh, not in every state, not every place, not every one of them, but but many times they don't like the idea of, of restaurants being able to uh, sell in an off-premise uh, uh, take-home capacity. Um, again, I think those are very different uh, products, but, but, but I think that a lot of times it's kind of that protectionist mentality that is often at play uh, um, more, more than it really is legitimate uh, uh, health and safety concerns. And, and, and I, I was going to probably save something like this for a little later, but that just it takes me back to, I think, was it, it's, is it Indiana where like for the longest time they wouldn't allow cold beer sales. And that was all based off of some distributors, different other people, um, you know, like, I mean, which is just crazy to think, but that's how much influence other people can have on policy that may affect your life that you just have no clue. Yeah, and no, the, the Indiana is a great example, and, and the one that I often use uh, uh, for this is, uh, yeah, the, the convenience stores and gas stations are a different type of licensee than liquor stores in the state, um, and liquor stores, uh, by kind of a weird quirk of the way the cookies crumbled over uh, decades, uh, can sell refrigerated beer, cold beer. They can put their beer in the refrigerator, which is how most people want their beer. Uh, mm. But gas stations and convenience stores um, are, are legally forbidden from putting their beer in a refrigerator or in ice. They have to sell at room temperature. Uh, so uh, yeah, it is a great example. And then, so then, you know, the convenience stores obviously want to be able to do that because people want cold beer mm. and in every other state they can get that from, you know, the convenience store. Um, or, or gas station, uh, but the liquor stores don't want to give them that privilege because uh, they want to be kind of the only game in town uh, when it comes to, to selling uh, refrigerated beer. So uh, yeah, that, that, that's a really um, kind of glaring example of how that dynamic can break down, but that happens uh, across the alcohol industry in a lot of ways. There's a lot of um, uh, what I feel is like a little bit of like a circular firing squad mentality where uh, everyone's trying to kind of protect their pond and their turf. Um, and I think this is the fact that a rising tide kind of can raise all ships. And, and to me, that's kind of the best way to, to look about, look at it. And I think the, the um, reform minded people are starting to look at it that way and be like, Hey, even if I don't have um, a restaurant, but I operate a grocery store. Well, you know, yeah, let them do to-go cocktails. And then also let me, you know, uh, deliver as part of an instant cart order, um, uh, you know, a, a six pack of beer, which uh, not every state uh, does allow that. So. Well, that's a, a perfect segue because it seems like uh, technology and everything else is changing so fast and the pandemic changed everything to where people wanted stuff delivered uh, to them. How are states adapting to the push for internet sales and kind of this changing world of just everything? Yeah, I, I think that, uh, so the problem isn't the technology, right? Or the know-how to allow uh, online alcohol sales. Um, there already are some examples of that. Some companies that um, will, uh, you know, we just referenced, you know, like your instant cart order, right? Um, or, or grocery delivery, you can get alcohol from a local grocery store uh, to your home in, in, in most states, not all states. Um, so the technology isn't the issue. It's oftentimes uh, 
you know, laws, again, on the books that have been on the books for a very long time that uh, limit the kind of access or the ability for the company that's, that's doing the online retailing to actually deliver that product uh, to you. Um, and, and the biggest thing that's kind of stopping uh, true kind of what we would view in our modern society is uh, internet, you know, an internet national marketplace of, uh, of alcohol, a true e-commerce uh, world of alcohol sales is the uh, restrictions um, of uh, shipping across state lines um, in, in alcohol. Uh, local deliveries, one thing, you know, your local <laughs> restaurant or your local grocery store, uh, it raises a whole host of, of complicated, and we, we can talk about uh, some of them, um, uh, uh, constitutional and legal issues when you start going across state lines. Um, and uh, because of that, very, most states allow, for example, wineries to ship. Uh, wine clubs are very popular. People are, um, you know, for decades have gotten uh, wine shipped directly from, from California wineries or wherever. I think 46 states allow that across state lines. But uh, liquor and beer, uh, only uh, like a dozen or less, uh, I think for each of them, um, allow, uh, 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 you know, interstate across state line shipments. Um, and that's that's from the producers, right? The brewery and, and, and the distillery. So you go to a distillery in one state and want to get shipped back home, they usually can't do it. Um, not to mention retailers, right? So uh, you go to a, a really fancy bourbon shop uh, in, in Lexington, um, which you know I've, I've done when I visited there, and I go back to uh, Virginia, and you know my local uh, state-run ABC store in Virginia doesn't have a certain bourbon that uh, it was stocked in that store. I, they can't ship it to me, right? Uh, they can't mm-hmm. business across state lines. Uh, so that's what's really preventing kind of these uh, uh, this true e-commerce national internet market for for alcohol st- uh, sales. Some states are recognizing this now. Kentucky passed a a kind of uh, I think a trendsetter uh, piece of legislation that will at least allow it from the distillers and the brewers. Mm-hmm. Uh, retailers aren't included, but it uh, doesn't uh, include uh, brewers and, and distillers to ship across state lines. But they only can control Kentucky, right? So they, yeah. the other states need to have <laughs> reciprocal agreements that will then allow the, it really to flow back and forth. So unless you get almost all 50 states, like with wine to do it, you're, you're still going to be limited on um, where you can ship. And so um, states are, I think, trying to maybe uh, think more about how to join into compacts with each other and, and kind of uh, accelerate that whole process. But but we're not going to get there overnight. Um, and it's because we have this uh, this patchwork um, that really has a lot to do with, with the kind of legal history of alcohol um, and, and the constitutional history of it that makes it uh, unfortunately much more tricky than, uh, you know, uh, I always, the example I always use, I can go on Etsy and get like a homemade babushka doll from Minnesota and get it delivered to me, but I can't go and get a Minnesota distillery that makes a, a handmade bourbon uh, delivered to me. So uh, that to, to get uh, those things to be uh, similar, uh, it's going to require a lot of states to, to, to pass reforms. Yeah, and it's also one where if you're wondering why such and such uh, bourbon or beer isn't in a market yet. Uh, sometimes there's a bunch of, of issues there in terms of what they've got to go through and find distributors and, and so forth. Um, and, and it's kind of amazing to think about that. And it's also, I, I think, amazing to think about when when you talk about restaurants or bars or almost anywhere, the amount of licenses that they have to work to get to sell alcohol is mind-boggling. I, did, I, I knew there was a bunch, but I guess I never knew how many until, you know, cities were giving reprieves to, to help these restaurants. And, you know, like a restaurant here in Lexington, Kentucky might've had seven, eight, nine different licenses 
you know, to do Sunday brunch, to do late after hours, to do you name it. Um, and it just kind of blew my mind. But uh, how crazy are some of these laws or at least, you know, because and they can be expensive, too. And, and I mean, I've heard distilleries talk about it. It takes two, three years to get up and running and get through the legal process. Yeah, uh, right. I mean, licenses are um, the idea of licensing um, the businesses involved in an uh, in industry is very prevalent. It's the primary, really the primary regulatory legal mechanism uh, for alcohol, right? So every last restaurant has to have a license to sell alcohol. Uh, a bar um, sometimes has to have a different license depending on how much food they sell. Uh, every liquor store needs to have some version of a license. Uh, the brewers, you know, everyone in the industry has a, a different type of, of license. Um, you know, they'll sometimes letter them, you know, an A, A, B, C, D, you know, D license that will allow you to do different things. Um, and so uh, that, that um, obviously there, there's similar uh, things in other industries, but it's particularly prevalent uh, in alcohol. Uh, and, and, the other thing you see very often uh, in the alcohol marketplace is uh, limitations on how many licenses there is or who can have licenses. So many states, uh, particularly with uh, restaurants, um, will have, uh, or bars, will have uh, ones that are linked to population. So, you know, you only can have one license per 3,000 people. Um, I think that's uh, what, what it is in New Jersey. Uh, and, and so what that does is that it, it limits the supply, the number of licenses that are available because there's only so much population in that area, right? And then those are the, that's correlated to the number of licenses. And so what will often happen is that, uh, you know, someone who wants a license, some new restaurant opens, they can't get one. All the licenses are taken by, you know, existing businesses. Um, and if a business closes, uh, well, their, you know, license becomes available. But then those licenses often uh, will be extremely expensive because everyone wants that license from the bar that just closed because they can't get a new license. They need that existing license. And so that's why you'll hear these stories of, you know, $500,000 restaurant licenses uh, in some states, a million it's gone for in some places where they'll actually have an auction uh, to get it. And that's really hard for a business, right? To, yeah. to front that. Uh, it's a huge, really the biggest investment they make sometimes if it gets up to those uh, numbers. Um, and, you know, you see other things, um, for example, some states will only allow you to own one or two uh, types of a license in a state. Um, and you think, well, you know, how would that really have an impact? But, uh, you know, think of like a grocery store chain, right? And so maybe only three of their locations can sell alcohol within a state. All of their locations can sell food, but only three of them can sell alcohol because the state has a law that says one entity can only own three alcohol licenses uh, for, for selling uh, for grocery stores. So it's just an example of how the licensing um, kind of system can get distorted, uh, can get really expensive and can get really complicated to, to be able to, to sell alcohol. Um, and again, uh, in a way that, that you don't often see in, in other industries. You see licensing of other businesses, but rarely do you kind of see this restriction on who can own them and how many they can own. Yeah, and, and needing one to, you know, sell at 11 o'clock on a Sunday versus not and, and so forth just to get those extra right. uh, dollars, which is great, uh, you know, for a city's budget, but sometimes it's a little harder on the, on the owner's budget. Um, now, yeah. one thing here in Kentucky that we saw recently uh, was some self-distribution um, being allowed for uh, craft breweries um, because before basically they had to go through a distributor, that lovely three-tier system that uh, dates back to prohibition and, and so forth. Um, 
what's it like to see, you know, states kind of give those little breaks and how important are they to allow some of these uh, places to do some self-distribution? Because not always does every entity play nice together. Yeah, no, it's a great, uh, it's a great question. And, and uh, yeah, self-distribution, I mean, it basically just means that that, that brewery can sell directly uh, to um, the retailers that are then turning around and selling their product. They don't have to go through the middle tier wholesaler uh, uh, level in the three tiered system. Uh, and and it, it's a huge deal. And it's, it's even a, a, especially a big deal, the way that our modern craft beverage market uh, has uh, evolved, right? We are really used to uh, now a, a bunch of breweries within, uh, you know, every other street corner, <laughs> it seems like. And the era of them all produ- <clears throat> producing like one, you know, flagship beer or two or three that they're going to make a ton of are gone. Most of them are doing new releases every week and they're trying to kind of spread their product around, right? Um, and, 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 they oftentimes are not anymore shipping if there's one in Virginia. They don't care about the California market. They used to, right? The, the old kind of previous generation of craft brewers was trying to spread the net as wide as possible. But a lot of them take pride in only selling locally, right? So there's a lot of Richmond breweries. You only get their, their, their beer in Richmond, right? And then they take pride in that. And so they like to be able to go down to, you know, one of the restaurants down the street um, and sell them their beer directly instead of having to work through a, a distributor. Sometimes they only will sell like five restaurants. You can get mm-hmm. uh, the beer from them. Otherwise, you have to go and get it from, from, from on-premise, right, from the brewer itself. And in those situations, you know, they don't oftentimes need or want a a wholesaler distributor. It can be very expensive. Um, A lot of times those distributors don't really uh, work at that level of volume, which is a lower level of volume. And so it just doesn't really make any sense that they can't just, you know, walk their keg down the street to to the restaurant and sell directly. So I think that we're seeing more of these self-distribution laws be put into place in more states to kind of allow this uh, 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 kind of organic growth in, in the beer market, um, or, or the just you know everything I just said applies to uh, distilleries too, uh, obviously um, to kind of allow them to expand, but be able to do it in a way that makes sense for their business and not kind of be forced into these arbitrary relationships with wholesalers. And I, I think you touched on a good point there. Wholesalers aren't necessarily wanting to deal with some of these small numbers that the states are allowing. And it's a kind of a win-win for, for everybody because who knows, maybe that person will get big enough where they end up needing a wholesaler uh, down the road. Cause there is some, some benefit to having that ability to, to only send your product one place and it can go the entire uh, across the state. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens and, and what are some other interesting law issues or policy changes that have been coming up here lately that have piqued your interest. Yeah, um, I think one of the things that we're going to continue <laughs> seeing the rise of is, is the um, uh, uh, canned, um, you know, kind of like everyone is used to the white claws right now. Um, the, the, the industry lingo for them is RTD, ready to drink. Uh, I think we're going to see those um, continue to expand. The market growth for them has been incredible. But one of the things that's interesting is, is I think a lot of people don't realize is that, is that a lot of them are actually made with uh, malt beverage, um, not uh, actual um, distilled spirits in them, right? So uh, one of the things we're starting to see more of is, you know, hey, get a, um, you know, 
bourbon ginger uh, in a can, get a, uh, you know, a or a gin and tonic, right, uh, in a can, mm -hmm. um, which is a little bit different. It's actually like a canned cocktail, right? Uh, and, and one of the things that's interesting is that um, because those are distilled spirits, they're often um, have to be sold in different stores, right? So uh, take a state like Virginia, uh, Virginia only, the only place liquor can be sold is a state run store. So if you're all of a sudden making a canned cocktail um, that say is, you know, rum and Coke is what the canned cocktail is going to be. Um, it, it, it has a very low, uh, you know, ABV point uh, alcohol uh, content compared to a, a bottle of bourbon, right? Um, and uh, so it's really in some ways closer, like what a beer would be, but does it have to only be sold in the, in the state run, uh, uh, liquor stores, or could it also be sold at the grocery store alongside the wine and the beer? Right. So that raises an interesting policy question. Um, how is it taxed? Is it taxed like uh, a bottle of bourbon, uh, which has a higher tax or is it taxed like beer? Uh, so that's going to be a really, it, it seems like kind of an inside baseball industry, kind of a thing, but it's going to be really interesting because you can go to a lot of countries. Like I went to Australia um, before the pandemic happened. It's great. I mean, you can walk in there and get a, a Coca-Cola and bullet bourbon, right? Yeah. And, you know, I'd, I'd probably rather make my own cocktail with bullet, but, you know, all else being equal, uh, there's the, uh, if, if that's there, it's something I might put in my rotation every once in a while um, uh, at a store. And so it's kind of neat to have that. And, and it'll be interesting to see um, if, if some of the barriers to kind of that becoming bigger in the U.S. Uh, will be kind of cleared away and reformed. So that's definitely an issue that I think is going to continue to be uh, really interesting. And we already talked a little bit about uh, more alcohol shipment um, across state lines. I think that's only going to continue to be a, mm -hmm. a bigger issue that people are going to really be uh, really be focused on uh, the, the more the more that we go, that we go along. Uh, so, yeah, um, it, it's going to be interesting uh uh, time for the alcohol industry. And there's uh, no, no shortage of, of different ways that it could modernize. And it's just going to depend on kind of the will of policymakers to make a lot of that happen, I think. So yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see because, you know, there's a lot of places that always don't like change. And, and it seems like change might be becoming and or needed, uh, so to speak. Um, one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about is you wrote a book called Give Me Liberty and Give Me a Drink. It's a fun book talking about alcohol history, how some laws came about, some crazy laws and some cocktails to go along with it. Um, what, what made you write that book and, and, and how was that process like? Because I know a lot of research went into it. Yeah, yeah, that that book was um, it, it was fun. It was a lot of research, but uh, it was it was interesting research. Um, and yeah, the, the book just kind of came about. It was um something that, uh, I, you know, I, I talked for a long time about doing some kind of book, uh, kind of exposing or talking about America's crazy alcohol laws. I think everyone's kind of used to having some weird thing in their state that isn't allowed, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, with alcohol. Uh, and, and I thought, well, you know, every state's got some of that, right? And so it might be kind of fun to put together a uh, kind of a, a compendium of that, I guess, um, for people to see. And, and uh, you know, because it's alcohol, it's a fun topic. So, hey, why not, you know, match it with a, a cocktail recipe, right, um, that, that goes together. Um, and uh, it was actually uh, um, my wife's idea. She's she's a, an ag a literary agent. So she kind of uh, took those two ideas and put them together. Um, we're like, hey, this is, this is cool. Uh, we, should, we should go with this. So that's kind of how it came about. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was fun to kind of... Uh, uh, to figure out like a different rule or law to feature uh, in each state. Um, and then also kind of have some profiles of people that, you know, a distiller 
uh, or a restaurant owner um, or a brewer in there that kind of some crazy thing they're dealing with that makes their business really hard. Uh, did some fun profiles uh, interspersed in it of like famous moonshiners in American history um, uh, and, and kind of just give a, a background for people, a fun, lighthearted background of kind of why our system for alcohol laws are, are so silly. So yeah, that, that was, uh, it's, it's irreverent and fun, but also has, a, I think, a real purpose to it too. So uh, I enjoyed it. And there, there's a lot of fun, fun things in there. And, you know, I, I think obviously I think my favorite part is, is just some of the weird laws. You know, last time we talked about like the Zion wall out in uh, Utah or wherever, where they had to make the drinks behind a wall because heaven forbid anyone knew how they put them together or something like that. Um, so what, what are maybe some other good ones that, that come to mind that, that, that you, you, you would like to share? Yeah, we've already talked about uh, the Indiana one. That, that's a great one. The warm beer law. Um, Kentucky, uh, uh, speaking of, has um, uh, like like a lot of states uh, has um, uh, you know some dry counties in it. Um, but uh, I always find it interesting that it's not just dry or wet counties. <clears throat> in a lot of states, it's also a third category called moist, mm-hmm. um, which <laughs> I find so funny that that's the term for it. But uh, it can mean different things. And and so in Kentucky, one of the things that qualifies as a moist county is a uh, county that is dry, except that USGA uh, approved golf courses uh, can uh, uh, serve alcohol. Um, which is a wonderful kind of uh, emblematic uh, uh, example of, of alcohol and how silly things can get. Um, and also shows, again, a type of licensee that has a special privilege, right, uh, that, that no one else enjoys. So I find that interesting. Tennessee, of course, famously Jack Daniels is located in a dry county. They have an exemption on site, but you know there's no liquor stores in that county that, that sells Jack Daniels. So it's another funny example. Um, and uh, yeah, let's see, uh, Washington State, uh, Virginia, actually the same. Both those states um, limit the amount of um, spirits that you can taste when you go to a distillery. Uh, Washington State, it's two ounces, uh, and uh, Virginia, it's three. So they, they, will, um, they can make mini cocktails for you, or you can do little, little mini pours. Uh, but once you hit the three ounces of, of, uh, of their, their spirits uh, for the day, you're done, um, which is hilarious because you can go down the street to the brewery, which is, you know, nowadays selling, um, you know, uh, uh, these hot bomb IPAs that can be well over uh, uh, 10% ABV. Or a barrel uh, age something. <laughs> or a barrel age something, which can be, yeah, 15. Um, yeah, and and uh, they're, they, you can drink those like they're going out of style. So uh, it's just funny. Um, but also the real kind of uh, uh, thing behind the curtain when you when you look at it is just examples of nonsensical rules that benefit someone hurt someone else and you kind of uh, have to ask why they exist um, and, and so the book kind of th- those are some examples from it but there's you know again uh, over 50 of them uh, uh, one from each state and then some extras uh, that, that I highlight that, <laughs> that just uh, show uh, how silly things can get in alcohol land. Yeah, it's very interesting to see. And, and uh, I, you know, in Kentucky, or at least where I used to work, you know, we had one where um, it's, it's, a, it's a moist city. Um, the, the counties kind of, or at least one of the cities in the counties, uh, a wet city, you know, everything's pretty much legal there. The county, not, not so much, but the second city, if you're in a historic district that has approved it or in a historic building, then you can, can serve it in a restaurant or, or, you know, 70% of your sales come from food. Um, you, you can, uh, you know, serve it in, like you said, it's just all, all sorts of craziness. And, um, it's also wild to just see, uh, what, what some people have to go through in some States. 
Yeah, it is. Yeah, the, the food beverage ratio that you mentioned is common. In some states, they have to sell sometimes a certain amount of food in order to be able to sell alcohol. In Virginia, they have to do that for uh, spirits, but not for beer and wine, not counted as part of the ratio and no rationale given. Um, but it makes things like having a really high-end cocktail bar hard, right? Because you have to serve a ton of food if you want to meet that ratio. So yeah, that, it's just all kinds of stuff that makes you shake your head and be like, what are we doing here? Well, well, Jared, I really appreciate you taking time to talk some alcohol laws, your book, and, and just some some craziness in this industry. It's a pleasure as always. Yeah, thanks for having me as always. I appreciate it. Uh, it was a lot of fun talking with Jared, and I really appreciate him coming on to talk about alcohol policies and laws and how that really affects us because you never think about a dispute over maybe airplanes affecting the alcohol industry, but that's what happens. And also licensing and all these other things that really can you know, add some extra dollars to, um, you know, what we uh, pay at the end of the day, even the uh, quote unquote sin taxes uh, that, that can be uh, charged to our drinks at, at certain restaurants, uh, depending on where you, you live. Uh, you just never know. And it was a lot of fun listening to him. And I truly appreciate that. Don't forget to check out all of our past uh, summer school episodes, you know, building innovative brands with Rod and the crew from Slow Brew, uh, how to start a whiskey collection with Chad, a.k.a. My Daily Bourbon on Instagram, summer beers and summer cocktails with Kevin Patterson and Jake Solick, uh, grains and their impact on whiskey with Middle West Spirits Ryan Lang, uh, making tequila or agave spirits here in the U.S. with uh, Jeff Evans from Meanville Distilling. And we finished it all off technically last week with getting creative with Connor Query and uh, Carrie Johnson uh, and the cool things that they do uh, with uh, stuff after we you know, enjoy those beverages. It was a lot of fun. And uh, we got some some cool episodes coming up for you the rest of this month. Uh, we'll be talking with Old Smoky Distillery. Uh, we'll also be doing a flight night. And uh, we've got a whole lot of good things coming up. Make sure to follow us on our social media, at Hop Spirits, all one word on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. You'll find all sorts of great things, like I said. And if you can, subscribe to our YouTube page and give us a five-star review on your favorite podcast player and leave us a nice note. It really means a lot. And if you need uh, to find out a little bit more about us, go to hopspirits.com and check us out. We truly appreciate it. Until next time, everyone. Cheers. Cheers.